This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we speak to British design icon Margaret Calvert, talk wayfinding with the Sign Design Society and pay a visit to a new pavilion in Austria. Plus, we wrap up our summer series. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Typographer and graphic designer Margaret Calvert is a living icon of British design. A royal designer for industry for graphic design and an OBE recipient, she's best known for her namesake font, Calvert, and her contributions to the graphic design of road signage across the United Kingdom, created with her colleague Jock Kinnear. Her most recent project, however, has taken a steer into the digital. Calvert is among the roster of 24 creatives commissioned by Known Unknown and the typography company Monotype to create a unique digital collection that celebrates the typeface Helvetica. I caught up with Margaret at her home in North London to discuss the project and her life's work. So, I mean, that was, that was wonderful to do a, a film. A, I like to call it a movie because it moves. And there was another Helvetica film, was it? And this is the second one. <laughs> Both the posters were done, artwork done by Henrik Kubel, who has also done a, a wonderful NFT that's very, what I call, um, video now art. I come from a world where it's got to be understood, and if it's not, it's no good. So there's a different feel about things in terms of what design is now. So I just think things change, but I stay the same. I mean, I want to ask about things changing. I, I like that. You've, you've had a you know, storied career uh, dating back to the, the 50s. How has your work evolved with technology over that time? Is it just in terms of like the tools you're using or is it also in terms of the forms or the shapes or, or, or your work graphically and, and typographically? I think I get dragged into new technology almost reluctantly because in terms of designing letter forms and, and typefaces, and I've designed not a lot, but quite important ones, I just have to draw with a pencil the shapes. And it's the process of what I call, well, head and hand. I mean, they, they, they're connected, aren't they? I sometimes think of as mind as, as being separate from me because I don't always understand it. The thing about new technology in terms of graphic design, basically, in typography, it's all very, very quick, and it's all done on screen, and they've all got these systems to do the artwork and that, and it's, you've got to be really technically astute to understand them. I get a bit... I can't cope with all that stuff, because it, for me it takes away the enjoyment of design, and I like the process. The slower the process... For me, the, the more enjoyable, and sometimes you have to put what you're working on aside and you come back to it in a, sometimes in years, but in two or three days or an, or an hour or just to stop, and then you see it afresh. And um, I always think the solutions are there and you just have to find them and know when that's it. And um, that takes a bit of time. 
I was quite quick to get a, um, a MacBook Pro the very first, and I thought that was absolutely phenomenal, especially with um, taking photographs and images. And for me, that's a process of working now. Um, whatever I draw or any idea that comes up as a scribble or a thought, I would immediately take a picture of it. So I've got a whole sequence of images um, when you've moved on that you can go back to and refer to, because sometimes you, you pass go. Um, so it's a method as well. It complements my hand stuff. So technology for me is, is, is wonderful. I do think because it's so easy once you understand the systems, um, you can produce something that looks better backlit on a computer than if it was a still piece of work. Um, and um, so I think a lot of stuff is, is really unresolved. And almost now everybody can do it. Everyone can, is doing their own typefaces and whatnot. So I just keep in my small little bubble. I mean, can I, can I ask more about that little bubble and that process? You talked about the connection between your head and your hand. What, what's the, I guess, the starting point for you to tackle any problem? Is it to start drawing or, or is there something else that goes into it? Oh. <laughs> um, well, you see, I don't think that I'm in control of myself. I just find my whole career and everything has almost, in a strange way, been mapped out for me. So I find myself where I am. I never know what's round the corner, but I think that's one of the surprises and, and, and joy of it. But in terms of thinking, thinking of what to do, my principle, I change it all the time, by the way, is if a question comes in, or a brief or whatever, I will work at rephrasing that. I question always, is it required? What's it about? And once I've done that, and once I put in my question, that opens the door for more possibilities. And then it's a problem. I, I usually end up with about two or three that I play with endlessly. Final one clicks into focus, and that's it. And I can never understand why I didn't get there in the first place, because they're usually very, very simple ideas. Can we go back to the beginning in this in this uh, discussion here? I know you you came over here to study and you were at uh, Chelsea. My mother, who was on her own, because very sadly, my father was killed in an accident when I was five. So my mother, most of her relatives were here in this country, and she'd obviously always wanted, I think, to get back. So she brought my sister was three years older than me. So we came back, and I needed to go to school. Eventually they did find a school for me. Then I had this wonderful art mistress called Winnie Passmore and um, she just recommended Chelsea to me. So I hadn't any idea about art schools or anything. Um, Jock Kinnear was a tutor, a part-time tutor at Chelsea. And he was there to actually give, because I was illustration and printmaking, so to give us um, an introduction to what graphic design was about, because graphic design is a, it didn't actually exist then, and it's almost going going now, so let me keep changing names. and that. So um, Jock got this job to design all the signs and graphics at, at um, Gatwick Airport, the new Gatwick Airport then, and he wanted help, so he invited me to be his assistant, and you know, the rest, as we say, is history. Can I ask, the, the next thing I believe you worked on were the road signs yes. with him. Jock got the commission, by the way, certainly not me. <laughs> and, I mean, this is another embarrassing thing. I keep reading myself 
about myself as the designer of the whole entire system and perhaps the world. <laughs> um, so I just ignore it because, I mean, everything gets screwed up in that respect. You work on this project together. Yeah. What, what's it like to have something that it's still in use today? Yeah. It, it, it's still, I guess, you know, new iterations are still being yeah. produced because we need more road signs. I guess maybe there's two parts to this. What's it like to have a design that, that stays the course like that? And then two, why do you think it had stayed the course? That's a, that's a good question. I think I would give all that credit down to Jock. I can remember him saying, well, I th- the good thing about him is Jock treated me as an equal and he needed someone to, to talk over things. And I was very, without knowing it, I think I was very competitive. And if I could think of a better way of doing something, I would have my say. And this used to upset Jock quite a lot. And the next day we'd come in and he'd say, I've been thinking, but I think I, I think I agree. I mean, so, you know, there was that coming together. And so we worked as a team. And, the, and he, of course, got the commission from the government. And I was just there. And, you know, I was fortunate in that I was there. So we were both in at the deep end. And I can remember him saying, if this takes off, it's going to be really something. Because you never expect, we never expected it to, to be the whole country. Because it started with just the motorway signs because there were all these new motorways being built. And then a very far-seeing civil servant, J.G. Osborne, um, it was his idea to set up another committee to look at the um, all-purpose road signs. And that's when it all naturally, it just naturally came together. Jock obviously worked out the system, and my input was very much to do with the the lettering, transport design, um, several of the pictograms, which you see all over the house. When I'm thinking of design, it's so often contextual, but when that context is constantly changing, how do you make sure that, you know, a, a work is still legible no matter where it is? I have to be more than just one person. I have to be the audience as well. So in terms of legibility and clarity which are the two essential ingredients. I can judge that. The road ones were also done on a scientific basis with lots of tests by the Road Research Laboratory. But again, I think it's very important as the designer to be the one in control. The minute you start relying on other people's opinions, you're lost. So there's, there's an element of trusting yourself when you're designing. Uh, well, yes, because that's who you are. You must have something a bit special to be who you are. Otherwise, the answers and the questions wouldn't, wouldn't come easily. Um, it could be just walking around. It could be triggered by what you see and often triggered by what you don't like. If I've got to give any advice to students, is find your own path and, and follow it. Don't try and just fit in because it's new technology or it's new that. If you've got the question sorted, you should be able to find an answer that pleases you. I also like whatever I've done to not necessarily be instant, unlike road science, they should be instantly understood, but actually allows someone to get it working in their head as well so that they contribute to understanding it. The designer Margaret Calvert there.
Next up, we're rounding out our summer series. How? Well, by looking at the bucket hat, a summery item of clothing first adopted as a high-fashion item in the 1960s, it has experienced something of a resurgence in recent years. To tell us how to wear them, here's Monocle's Jack Simpson. Staggeringly ever-present and consistently on trend, the bucket hat's endurance is surely due to humanity's desire to look a little bit silly every once in a while. These aptly named chapeaux ooze an assuredness and confidence, a bucket attitude, if you will, and though a slight novelty, are still worn by those who take no fashion choice lightly. Personally, I can't get past the memories of being forced to wear one by my mother to prevent sunburn as a small boy. Cruel, I know. But I admit there's an accessibility and a functionality to the bucket hat. Indeed, while being rather graceless in shape, this accessory has democratic charm in spades. Whether you're a late 1980s Bronx rapper, a windswept fisherman, or a baby at the beach, bucket hats are for the people. Still sceptical? It might just be a matter of finding the right one. For a classic look, it's best to go to Austrian hatmaker's Mulbauer. Alternatively, try a colourful crochet number from Emily Levine, or a pinstripe piece from Grevy, which will fold neatly into beach bags. High-end versions, by Prada or Maison Michel, have sought to elevate the hat's classic shape and are bound to attract buckets of praise. We stay in London now to consider the art of wayfinding design. It's a complex practice that combines graphic, industrial and type design and strategic planning too. Despite being essential in helping us to navigate cities and buildings, its significance is often overlooked. So we thought it wise to reflect on some great examples of wayfinding and environmental design. This show's producer, Maylee Evans, met up with Andrew Barker, chair of the Sign Design Society at London's Granary Square. It, it is a really interesting field because the things have to work as well as looking great. Making things work, particularly in this sort of noisy, complicated built environment, can be really difficult. And what you discover as a wayfinding designer is every person you meet, whom you tell you're a wayfinding designer, they have more than one story about the places they've been to where it hasn't worked. And they clearly get quite cross about it. So, you know, everyone wants you to go and fix you know, their station or those places they go to that don't work. The wayfinding and placemaking in Granary Square was done by a company called Holmes Wood, and that must have been in about 2016 or 17, I think. Certainly it was shortlisted for an award, I think, in 2018. So the key element that they've created are these large monoliths. They're interesting because they're constructed of two monoliths. They must be about, how tall would you say that is? Is that about eight feet, two metres, do you think? I think that's pretty tall. Yeah, and they're two monoliths that stand next to each other but they lean towards each other and one of the things I discovered is that what they're meant to reference are the converging lines of a railway track which I thought was an interesting reference given we're in Granary Square and this is what used to be the hinterland of King's Cross so there was any number of railway lines here until they redeveloped it. What we can't tell because we're here during the day is the space between the two monoliths is actually illuminated so at night they glow with a sort of teal coloured glow from between them which is picked up on the granary square lettering at the top which is also illuminated there's one thing they've had to take into account which is what happens when the things that they need to signpost change uh eternal problem because people are always 
renaming spaces, changing what the businesses are. And on these signs, there's a section uh, towards the top which gives the directional signage on it. That part of it is clearly renewable so that they can be updated when the names change. So, for instance, the top of this one, it includes Coal Drops Yard. And I doubt that that was there when this signage first appeared. So that would be possibly one of the additions that they've made to it since then. Maybe let's take a wander and yeah. where else shall yeah. we? Well, I mean, if we walk over in this direction. But, I mean, as we're standing here, one of the things it's worth saying, I, I know that the organisation that I'm chair of is the Sign Design Society, but there's an awful lot more than signs that we need to talk about. There are all sorts of wayfinding cues in the environment and the most basic ones of them are quite often the environment itself. For instance, looking at Central St Martins across Granary Square from us, we can see the doors into it. And this might sound blindingly obvious, but that's how we know how to get into the building, because we can see the doors. We wouldn't, for instance, consider climbing in through a window. We know that the doors are where we're going to access the building. And that's why grand buildings with big porticos are often really helpful, because you can see where the entrance is going to be from some distance away, and you can aim for it. Some modern architecture seems to have rather lost that really user-friendly approach. But, uh, yeah, just rudimentary things like doors, pathways, um, other people as well. Uh, One of the things that we spend a lot of time doing, possibly not even realising we're doing it, is following other people, either following them as they walk through space or following the tracks that they've made across an open space, a common or something. We will tend to orient ourselves by the paths that people have made across the grass. Um, so people are a very important wayfinding tool that we use. One piece of research that was done estimated that 75% of all wayfinding cues, navigational cues that we use, are visual. And that's great if you have good eyesight, but if you have any sort of sight impairment, you immediately start struggling. And, for instance, I was talking about Central St Martins and their doors. If you had any sort of visual impairment, you would probably be struggling to find where they are, certainly from a distance. Obviously, closer to it, you'd find it easier, but they would readily start disappearing from a distance. And that's a continual problem that people with vision impairment have, how they navigate the built environment, how they manage to not bump into all of the um, furniture, all the benches that have been arranged in places like this. Another project I'm working on for the Sign Design Society is we produce a document called the Sign Design Guide, which is an internationally recognised guide to accessible and inclusive wayfinding design. And that's now... 20 years old and we're in the process of updating it but as I've been doing my research to find out what good practice is most of the good practice I find refers me back to the sign design guide it's extraordinary that 20 years on it is still the go-to guide for what to do there was one wayfinding scheme I was hearing about where architects had colour coded it and part of it, their idea of colour coding, if I'm remembering this rightly, part was in teal and part was in kingfisher and those two colours are A, so similar you'd have real difficulty telling them apart 
under dim lighting or if you have poor eyesight but also if you're trying to tell somebody you want to go to the teal part of the building or you want to go to the kingfisher part of the building the chances are they don't know those two terms particularly if they don't speak english as a first language or they have learning difficulties so it's just like oh we want to go to the blue green bit well which blue green bit that blue green bit or the other blue green bit they need to be kind of red or blue or brown or green which might sound a bit pedestrian but if you want a color coding scheme to work that's what you've got to do and you then have to remember that some people are color blind so you cannot have only a color coding scheme it can only be in support of other tools that you're using to help people identify the way you've structured your building or space one of the things about developing wayfinding information and wayfinding systems is that you have to build in quite a lot of redundancy because people will fail to see your signs because they're distracted there's always got to be quite a high level of redundancy in there and that frustrates some clients because they don't see why all of that extra stuff is necessary but it's there so that people can fail to notice 25 percent of it and still get to their destination it's all a case of laying breadcrumb trails for people to follow whether they're visual auditory tactile or olfactory all of those cues people are going to be using all of the time as they find their way a major travel hub they did some research where they found that if their signs were internally illuminated so they're like light boxes so that the lettering uh, shines out from them people made their decisions about where to go 30 percent faster than if the signs weren't illuminated so travel hub people are probably going to be in a hurry so that is really helping them and they're about to be crowded as well so the faster you can get people out of the way and to their their gate or their platform or whatever it is the better it is in terms of those people who are late and stressed and are running out of hands to carry the things that they need an awful lot of recent approaches to navigation have suggested using apps or digital technology that of course presupposes that your phone hasn't run out of power that you have a phone that you have a hand free to hold it a friend of mine recently he was having to navigate his way across london and it was pouring with rain so he didn't want his phone to get wet he had to stick his headphones in tell his phone where he was going and just leave it to navigate him while it was in his pocket so there are all of those problems with digital technology about how it's going to work and and you know the tedium of having to download the app having a signal the problem of digital inclusion as well for all the people who can't or won't use a mobile phone for one reason or another and they do tend to get overlooked within your work with the sign design society are you getting a sense of any sort of newer challenges that designers now are facing or what seems to be sort of on the mind at the moment well digital is becoming more of a thing and wayfinding designers historically have designed three-dimensional objects that are in the real world and with more navigation having a digital component more businesses are thinking you know our offering to our clients needs to include that in some shape or form but at the same time they clearly have a loyalty to the practice of three-dimensional design product design and they like real objects in the real world so there's that tension there and possibly we're growing out of it a little bit now but an awful lot of clients kind of hear the word digital it's go oh their eyes light up gotta have that and it's not always the answer that you need andrew barker chair of the sign design society
This summer, Austrian architecture firm, most likely, completed a minimalist pavilion dedicated to culture in Semmering, near Vienna. Set against a beautiful backdrop of hills and mountains, it's reportedly the first such structure that is simultaneously mobile and made of wood. Monocle's Alexei Koryalov went along to Semmering to investigate. The Kultur Pavilion, it's like a club it's called the Kultur Sommer Semmering. And they are here since a couple of years in the Semmering, making the festival, the Kultur Sommer. And they were a long time in the Südbahn Hotel. In the picture postcard town of Semmering, halfway between Vienna and Graz, the grand old hotels have few visitors. And time seems to stand still. But not for everyone. It was kind of tough <laughs> because there were only three months to, yeah. to make the whole design process, to find companies who are able to build it. That was the main topic to get a timber construction company, which says, yes, um, we are able to fabricate such a, a pavilion. Well, the architecture firm most likely received a commission to design and construct a concert hall for the summer's culture festival in Semmering. They had to think on their feet. My name is Christian Hull and I'm an architect at most likely architecture. You knew it's, it's kind of um, ridiculous to build it that quick <laughs> and you have this final date because you know in the beginning of July, it's the first day of the festival, it has to be done. There's no, okay, maybe one week later or two weeks later, which is kind of normal on the construction side, but for the Kultur Pavillon it was okay, it has to be open on that day. Um, and it was. And it was, yeah, and it was. We were all happy. We said in the beginning it, it should be made out of wood. Just reasonable if you think about the future, the oh, material. We can see, we can see some gentlemen checking out the wood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the beautiful railing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, inside the building there is no metal or no concrete. <laughs> yeah, this in mind, we started designing um, the form of the pavilion, strongly with the influence of, or the... Um, needs for um, a good acoustic inside of it. The stage right here, the stage looks like a niche carved into the wall. Was that yeah. your idea? Yeah, this was the this is celebrating of the of the material that you can get the feeling out of it. Yeah, and yeah, there were a lot of a lot of discussions how wide, how, how deep, how high it's going to be, <laughs> because it's uh, important that you get a good sound out of it um, from every point where you're standing to every point in the room, and also to have um, a good eye contact with the artist on the stage. My name is Nina Sengstschmidt and I'm um, managing the Kultursommersemmerring in Austria. I think it really, we got luck in, in the building. It's very great for uh, concerts. It has a very, um, very good sound for, for piano, for violins and for all instruments, but also for voice and for singers. And for me, the specialty is the, 
the view outside you can watch the the show and you can have a so beautiful view on the mountains simmering and that's very beautiful i think and are you planning to keep using this pavilion after after this year yeah it's it's mobile so it could uh, go somewhere else but um We like this place very much and as long as we can stay here, we, we like to stay here. And uh, next year it's um, for sure and then we will see. The claim is that it can be taken apart and then reassembled in 14 days. Back to architect yeah, yeah. Christian Hull. It really can be done uh, that quick. There are like elements a little bit more than four meters. They are single shaped, single prefabricated um, in the timber construction company in Upper Austria. Obermeier, by the way. Quick shout out to Obermeier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really good company. Probably an extremely stupid question, but the building doesn't have wheels. It doesn't have wheels, that's true. It's standing on a foundation, yeah. so you have to build, of course, an even foundation. There's no ground which is even. Yeah, now we are on a parking area, which is definitely not even. It's going up and down. Um, so you have to level out this, this value, and then you can start with the with the floor of the building. Then it goes quick, yeah. It's the, the most time-consuming part is the, is the beginning to, to make like a zero level of the floor. There are for sure better places for the Kultur Pavillon Semmering than a parking lot beside a hotel, even if it's a grand hotel. But for now, as we heard, it's staying put. And well, you really can't beat the view. For Monocle and Semmering, I'm Alexei Korolev. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylie Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>